25th of May 1997, Primadonna Resort and Casino in Prim, Nevada. There will be a shocking crime committed here today, but what's almost as shocking is that a witness to the crime could have prevented it. This is the story of the murder of seven-year-old Cherise Iverson. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight I have a shocking story suggested by Islander Sharice Willis. As you know, every week I usually bring a full case followed by a special edition of a collection of stories. I'll drop the special edition name from the episodes and tonight I would normally have a collection of stories but I will just concentrate on one case as this one deserves to stand on its own. So as I said, one of our Islanders, Cherise, who spells her name differently to the murdered girl in the story, but she almost shares the same birth date to the day. Well, Cherise asked if I could present this case. Now, after reading through all the links she sent me, I was appalled. Now, I will give you a trigger warning as this does deal with the rape and murder of a seven-year-old girl. However, that will only be a small part of the story at the start and I'm sure you'll be able to skip that bit and listen to the rest of the show. Now, I'm going to try and limit cases about kids as I know it does upset a lot of people but really this story needs to be known as one of the characters is out there in the community and has been for the past 20 or so years. So, trigger warning. On the morning of the 25th of May 1997, Jeremy Strohmeyer and David Cash Jr., aged 19 and 17 years old at the time, were at the Prima Donna Resort and Casino in Prim, Nevada, while Cash's father gambled. It was early morning, uh, sometime just after midnight. Also at the casino was Leroy Iverson, who had brought both his children... 14-year-old Harold and 7-year-old Sharice. He'd just been kicked out of Buffalo Bills Casino for allowing the children to run around unmonitored. He then took the kids to Prima Donna Resort and Casino to continue drinking and playing slot machines while Harold and Sharice played around the slots. Several times, staff at the casino rounded up the two children and took them back to Leroy. They told him to take care of them. But the children ended up in the games arcade section of the casino. At around 3am, Jeremy Strohmeyer and David Cash Jr., both had been drinking and taking drugs, were also at the games arcade section of the Primadonna Casino, And it's here that seven-year-old Sharice started to play and joke around Strohmeyer. So we have two fathers playing the pokies 
that's what we call them in Australia, well, the slot machines, and the kids of both of them are in the video arcade waiting for them to finish. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't think that's great parenting. Now, I got this bit from Undercover Brother 57's blog. The sign outside Prim's Games Room that reads Buffalo Bills Resort and Casino, Prim Valley Resort and Casino, and Whiskey Pete's Hotel and Casino do not and shall not be deemed to have legal care, custody, or control of any child or minor under the age of 18 years while in this arcade as provided in Ordinance Number 12.12 of the Clark County Code. So there's a big sign up there saying if you're going to bring your kids in, take care of them. Anyway, Sharice is running around and starts joking around with Strohmeyer. Harold, Sharice's brother, had been told by their father to watch over and look after her, but he wasn't, and so Sharice continued to muck around with Strohmeyer. Eventually, Sharice ran into the ladies' room and Strohmeyer followed her. At first, she wet some paper towels and they were throwing them at each other. Then during the wet paper towel fight, somehow Sharice knocked the yellow wet floor sign onto Strohmeyer. In his drunken, drugged-out haze, he got angry. At this time, David Cash Jr. entered the restroom and saw Strohmeyer forcing Cerise into one of the cubicles, closing the door behind him. Cash then entered the cubicle next door and stood on the dunny and looked over at Strohmeyer and Cerise. Strohmeyer had hold of Cerise around her waist and he had one hand over her mouth, muffling her screams. Cash tapped Strohmeyer on the head and Strohmeyer looked up at him. Strohmeyer said nothing as he started to then molest the seven-year-old girl who was now terrified and trying to scream for help. Now, there, there is now a super, super trigger warning for the next 30 seconds as I don't even want to say the next bit, but I don't think I can leave it out either. Cash then asked Strohmeyer if she was wet and Strohmeyer showed him bloodied fingers. <sighs> Fuck, that is just sick and I didn't even want to say it, but I just have to show how sick these two people are. Cash then took, took off out of the ladies' toilets and into the arcade. 20 minutes later... Strohmeyer is seen on the CCTV leaving the ladies' toilets, but Sharice is not seen coming out. She's been raped, strangled to death. To make sure she was dead, Strohmeyer then twisted Sharice's neck until he heard a pop and then left her propped up on the toilet. Strohmeyer finds Cash outside the toilets in the arcade area, tells him he's just raped and killed the little girl and then they both leave the casino and continue their night out visiting several more casinos and even riding roller coasters all as if nothing has happened. Look, this is sick. This is probably one of the worst cases I've ever had to bring to you. Anyway, 
At around 5am, Leroy Iverson notices that his daughter is missing and he alerts security staff who start to search. It's not long before she's found propped up against the toilet where Strohmeyer left her. Security cameras would show her playing with Strohmeyer at around 3.47am and then they saw her enter the toilet area followed by him. Cash soon followed, but he left after only a couple of minutes. Then Strohmeyer is seen to leave the toilet area after another 20 minutes had passed. Police released CCTV images of the two on local media, and it was not long before students from their high school, Woodrow Wilson High, recognised them and then contacted police. Surveillance was conducted on Strohmeyer's house and they were able to, uh, able to identify him when he sat out the front and rolled a cigarette. However, Strohmeyer, who was being treated for apparent ADHD, took his bottle of dexamphetamine tablets and sculled them down with whiskey in an attempt to commit suicide as police moved in on him. He tried running down the street but was quickly captured and taken to hospital to have his stomach pumped. He'd even left suicide notes in his room. One of the notes read, I'm so sorry, I just pray that this is enough to finish me off. Please, Lord, let me die. I'm sorry, Mum, I'm sorry, Dad. Heather, all my friends and family, forgive me for I have sinned. I'm sorry... Please give these things, some objects, to Agnes Lee. Tell her I will always love her. Now, Heather was his sister and Agnes was an ex-girlfriend. At the hospital, Stromeyer confessed to police while he was in a lucid state and repeated the confession in a later interview. Both interviews were conducted without a lawyer present. And of course, he tried to use this in his trial to get his confession made inadmissible, but uh, luckily he failed. A search of Strohmeyer's computers found hordes of porn, including pedo porn, and allegedly chat room comments where he said, I fantasize about having sex with five and six-year-old girls all the time. Now, <sighs> Without going into too much detail on Strohmeyer's trial, at the last moment he pleaded guilty to four charges in return for not getting the death penalty and these charges were first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, sexual assault on a minor with substantial bodily harm and sexual assault on a minor. On October the 14th, 1998, He was sentenced to four life terms, one for each crime he pleaded guilty to, to be served consecutively without possibility of parole. All his appeals were unsuccessful. Thank God. Now, to commit the crime was bad enough, but there was one person who could have prevented the crime from happening other than Leroy Iverson, who shouldn't have taken his daughter to a casino at 4am in the morning while he played slot machines and failed to keep an eye on her. 
Now, this was David Cash Jr. You see, there was not enough evidence to charge Cash as an accessory to murder. Also, in Nevada, and as it stood most of the US at that time, there was no legal obligation for Cash to do anything when he saw his buddy attacking the little girl. There was not even an obligation for him to alert security or call police after witnessing what his buddy was doing to seven-year-old Sharice. Yolanda Manuel, Sharice's mother, led several protests as she believed Cash should be charged with being an accessory to murder. She said, he's evil, he's evil. She organised petitions and said that Cash had the blood of her baby on his hands. How terrifying it must have been for her. So, here is this guy, David Cash Jr., who witnessed his best buddy, Jeremy Strohmeyer, attack and begin molesting a defenceless seven-year-old girl and did nothing to stop him. Not even call security or police or do anything to prevent the attack. Now, the community at large were outraged by his behaviour and I'm sure Islanders, you are as well. I mean, I am, but then Cash after that is interviewed by several media outlets on why he didn't act. Now, his answers are enough to give you the rage almost as much as the perpetrator's acts. Now, here are some of the media reports. Cash is interviewed by KLSX hosts Tim Conway Jr. and Doug Steckler on July the 20th. Cash claimed that he did not do anything wrong by not stopping Strohmeyer from attacking Sharice. Now, Cash says during the interview, How much am I supposed to sit down and cry about this? Now, let's be reasonable here. Is my life supposed to hold for like days and weeks and months on end? The simple fact remains, I don't know this little girl. I don't know starving people in Panama or Africa who are killed every day. So I can't feel remorse for them. The only person I know is Jeremy Stromeyer. Wow, look, what an amazing fuckface. In a 60 Minutes interview... Cash was asked, some people call you the Bad Samaritan. Do you think that's an appropriate name? Cash answers, no, certainly not. Well, Bad Samaritan is probably what my mum would call him. I'd just call him a fucking cunt. Anyway, when asked about what happened that night in the toilets when Strohmeyer was attacking Cerise, Cash said he heard Strohmeyer threatening Cerise saying, shut up or I'll kill you. Cash then said, after asking Strohmeyer what he was doing and getting no response, that it was time for him to get out of there. What a man. When asked why it was time to get out of there, he replied, well, when an 18-year-old male grabs a 7-year-old child, you know, it's not a position I want to be in. Based on what I saw, I didn't want to stick around and see what materialised. When asked why he didn't call police after Strohmeyer told him he'd murdered the girl, Cash said, he was my best friend. We were taking AP English together. What the, what the fuck does that even mean? 
He's just murdered someone. He's not... I doubt whether he's going to English classes with his dick ever again. In an interview with the LA Times, he said, I'm not going to get upset over somebody else's life. I just worry about myself first. I'm not going to lose sleep over somebody else's problem. This guy really is special. He's a real, rare, special person. Anyway, Cash was enrolled at the University of California at Berkeley. He, was in, uh, he had a nuclear engineering major. Now, there were protests at the uni for him to be expelled. Sharice's uh, mum was there as well. However, he was not charged with any crime or had broken any university rules. They couldn't kick him out. They couldn't do anything. Eventually, he got his degree. On campus, 60 Minutes had arranged for him to meet other students to try to tell them his side of the story. Now, as you can imagine, that didn't go too well for him. When asked, didn't he think it was strange that his friend was still in the restroom 20 minutes after he'd left, and why wouldn't he go in and check? Cash replied, Let's say after 20 minutes, I come to the conclusion that he'd murdered this girl. Do I storm into the bathroom? What happens to me? Say the security guard walks in, sitting there with my best friend and a dead body there. You know what I mean? It's, it, look, it's clear that the only person David Cash Jr. cares about is himself. This gutless, disgusting excuse for a human being. I mean, you can imagine when Sharice looked up at him when Strohmeyer started attacking her. She must have thought, this guy is my only hope. But Cash walked out like the coward he was, not wanting to upset his best buddy murdering a defenceless seven-year-old girl. If he didn't want to confront his friend, he could have called out for help, but no, he just went outside, didn't want to see what happened, nor did he want to alert others who could have helped. Then he then he went off with his best buddy to party on into the morning as if nothing had happened. Well, police have doxed cash over the years, finding and posting online his personal details. This has led to him losing one well-paying job, but where he is now, I don't really know. All I do hope is that no one forgets little Sharice Iverson, and I hope they never forget the name David Cash Jr., and that his life is made somehow more hellish for his pathetic actions that morning. Nevada and California have since passed legislation because of this case. The California Assembly Bill 1422, or as it's known, the Sharice Iverson Child Victim Protection Act, this is a duty to rescue law and it requires that a person notify law enforcement if they witness a murder, rape or any lewd act where the victim is under 14 years old. Also in Nevada, the Nevada State Assembly Bill 267 or Sharice Iverson Bill, 
That requires people to report to authorities when they have reasonable suspicions that a child younger than 18 is being sexually abused or violently treated. So, Islanders, I I guess the shitness of this case was that the attack and murder of Sharice could have been prevented. We're not talking about the attacker wielding a gun or a knife and you have to run and take cover. We're talking about a punk attacking a little girl and he could have easily been stopped by his friend. The fact that that friend was and is a cowardly, selfish little cunt meant that the seven-year-old Sharice lost her life in such a disgusting, terrifying and senseless way. This story has affected me more than nearly any other case and I read a lot of true crime. It just goes to show that what people are capable of. Now, I won't read the whole statement here, but Stromine did make a final statement to the court. You can find it on Murderpedia if you just put Stromine's stupid name in there. It's about 5,500 words, so there's no way I'm reading it out. But this is how it starts. You cannot imagine a life more barren of consolation than which I have lived since the tragic morning of May 25, 1997. It is my resolution that you should know the extent of my despair, sorrow and guilt. I hope that through these inadequate words you may come to appreciate at least some measure of the shame and regret that I carry because, because of what I have done. I am haunted daily by the fact that I am to blame for the death of Sharice Iverson. Nobody could even begin to understand the depth of my despair and sadness except Sharice's family or perhaps my own grief-stricken parents. No one should ever have to experience pain such as what Yolanda Manuel and Leroy Iverson have experienced in losing their daughter. Words cannot bring Sharice back as much as I wish they could. All the same, these are some words that need to be said. I am sorry. I am sorry for my part in the tragedy that took place that early morning. The tragedy that resulted in little Sharice's untimely death. I do not know if any apology from me will ever have any worth for Sharice's family, but whether they will be able to accept it or not, I must apologise. Let it be known to Yolanda Manuel, to Leroy Iverson and to every person who who ever knew and loved Sharice Iverson, I am truly sorry. If I were given the opportunity to exchange my life for Sharice's and bring her back, I would not hesitate, not even for a second to do so. Not a day goes by that I don't feel the crushing weight of my guilt and sorrow for her loss. Sharice would still be alive today if not for me and I have got to live with that truth for the rest of my life. I am a condemned man, not only by the state but my own conscience as well. Now, at least he shows some remorse, not like that David Cash Jr. who got off scot-free, no charges, going on to live his life. Thank God there's now some laws, good Samaritan laws out there now that may prevent something like this happening again. Now, the next thing on the agenda, 
On the 30th of August, just a few days ago, Australian crime fiction writer, amongst other things, Peter Corris, passed away. He was 76 and thoughts go out to all his family and friends from everyone on the island. Now on a lighter note, a story from one of the islanders which I want to share with you. So here's Lee Jackson's story. He says, What's up Cambo? Your podcast is awesome mate. Thanks Lee. I've been listening to True Crime Podcasts for a couple of years but only recently found yours and I've been binging on your back catalogue and mate, it's a bloody fantastic and you're funny as fuck binging on my back catalogue. That sounds a bit weird. But anyway, Lee, <laughs> you say anyway as well. Anyway, I wanted to share a wee story with you. I think you'll like it. I live in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I've been a true crime fan since I was a little kid and first learnt what murder was. My dad had a book on JFK with pictures and all, and I would sneak it away and look at it for ages. The plitches pictures blew my mind and he says excuse the pun anyway when the Bain family murders happened I was 11 and from the first time I saw it on the news I followed the case now as you know I've done a story on David Bain and the he murdered his family come on and uh, there's also another good series uh, put out called Black Hands anyway let's get back to it As a teenager, I can't really say whether I thought David was guilty or innocent. I was fascinated with the case, fascinated with the case because that shit is unheard of in New Zealand. As an adult, I became quite convinced of his guilt. Now let's fast forward to 2010. The second trial had been been and gone and David was a free man. One day my mate had some shit to do and asked if I could watch her five-year-old kid. I said, sweet, as mate. No worries. So it's me and the kid and I said, what shall we do? Should we go to the airport and get on the platform and watch the planes take off and afterwards we'll play some video games at the arcade there? The kid said, yeah, sweet. Off we went to the airport, we got onto the terminal and as we were going up the stairs to the second level, I happened to look down to the right and who do I see using the ATM? The lunatic himself, David fucking Bain. David Bain! You think I could believe my eyes, Cambo? No, I couldn't fucking believe it. I said to the kid, we got a slight change of plans, mate. I spun right around and bolted back down the the stairs, kid in tow. The kid said, Lee, what's going on? I said, a once in a lifetime opportunity is occurring, mate. Just hold on to my hand. We got down the stairs and I started to trail David. I got right up behind him, about half a metre away, so close I could smell his cologne. I must say, he looked quite suave in his black overcoat suit. Made a nice change from those ugly woolen jerseys he was always wearing in the 90s. I think we all had those. I couldn't believe I was standing so close to a mass murderer. Was a strange feeling, Cambo, that's for dang sure. I tell you, mate, that fucker is seven foot tall and his ears are so big I thought the son of a bitch was going to lift off. Anyway, all I wanted to do was say, why'd you do it, Dave? Why'd you do it, mate? You can tell me, Dave. 
But I looked down at the kid who looked confused as fuck and decided that confronting a psycho killer with a five-year-old probably wasn't the best idea. The crime scene photos started flashing in my head and no one wanted a repeat of that. And after all, I didn't want the kid going home saying, Hey mum, we chased a killer today at the airport. Lee said he was a homicidal maniac. That wouldn't have gone down too well to say the least. So we followed him a bit more and then the fucker turned and looked at me. Mate, I was out of there. I fidgeted a bit and backed away very nonchalant. As I was walking away, I took a pic of him, but have since lost the phone, pick and all, damn it. Anyway, Cambo, that's my story about the day I came face to face with a psycho mass killer and lived to tell everyone about it. Hope you liked it, mate. We don't get a lot of that kind of crazy mass murder here in New Zealand, but there's one other incident that comes to mind, and that is the Aramona Massacre. Fucker by the name David Gray went berserk one day in a small settlement named Aramona just outside of Dunedin and shot dead about 13 people, including some kids and a cop. What is it with these fuckers named David from Dunedin losing their shit and killing everyone? Anyway, it's a bloody horrific story, mate. I remember that as the siege went on for two days. They couldn't find the fucker. He was hiding in one of those cribs and the cops were going through each crib one by one and eventually they found him. All the residents were locked down in their own cribs, not moving. How fucking terrifying. Look it up. I'm sure you'll find it interesting. There's also a great film about it that's really accurate called Out of the Blue. I went to Dunedin once in my life and I did two things. First, I went to every street to see where the Bain family house once stood, and then I went to Aramona, and I tell you, mate, being in that wee settlement really gave me a feel for how terrifying it must have been for those residents. Anyway, I'll let you look it up and have it read for yourself, mate. Love the podcast. (laughs) Love the podcast. It's fucking awesome. Keep up the great job, Cambo, and thanks for what you do, brother. (laughs) That's a great story, Lee, and Thanks for sharing it. And also, if you have a story you want me to share about anything true crime or whatever, actually, just message or email me. I'll read it out on one of these episodes in between normal cases. Now, next thing, heads up, I'll be doing a live show in the coming weeks. It will probably air on Facebook Live, but if the internet gods do not bless me with enough bandwidth... I may have to record the video and then upload it. it. Upload it. It will be unedited and live and it will involve deck chairs, beer, sand, and I'm sure you're going to like it. I'm, I will strip the audio out and upload it to the normal place. Uh, more details as time approaches. So, on to the shout-outs for patrons, and this week we have a few. First up is Morph from Murder in the Family podcast, who's jumped onto the islands. You'll probably know Mike from shows such as Criminology, Murder in the Family, of course, and he's got a new show with Nina Instead from Almost Gone Podcast. These are all these great podcasts out there called Crime Sphere. Now, more on that later. Also, thanks to Jerry Kennan, Stephen Martin. Thank you very much. Also, big thanks to Julie Barnard, who's pledged on the Mugger Rage Silver Deck Chair level. Thank you all so much. Now, I did get a message about extra content for Patreon people. Now, 
before Patreon, I was doing episodes every two weeks. And I stepped this up to a weekly show once I did start the Patreon and the PayPal thing. Now, my philosophy is that I'm commercial free. I know how commercials can be annoying. So I've kept this thing commercial free. And if you'd like to know, Nate, I really appreciate that a lot. I want everyone to be able to listen to all the shows regardless of donations, though. That's why I say you can help in other ways um, by sharing the show and gifting the love of podcast onto those who may not know the wide world of podcasts. So it's not just a financial thing you can do for the uh, island. You can also just share the love. Now, there are Patreon awards for the three upper levels on Patreon and the details are on the site. Again, also, if you don't want to do the monthly Patreon thing, you can donate via paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. And thanks so much to Chris Bairstow, who made a generous donation via PayPal this week. And I will be sending you some merch. And along with all the other Patreon awards, as this is the first week of the month. Also, if you expect a Patreon award, if it's a mug or a T-shirt, I will contact you to check your uh, addresses correct. Uh, For the $5 ones, I do send you stickers, so just make sure you get those. If you don't, just give me a buzz. Okay, if you do want a T-shirt, mug of rage or a tote bag or even a beach towel... You can go to truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can pick up your swag, loot or merch. If you want a key ring, pin, sticker or koozie, you do need to email me directly. They don't come out of the shop. I will ship them from Sydney. If you're unsure of the links, don't worry. Just go to www.truecrimeisland.com where I've got the link to the merch and all that sort of stuff. If you want, send me an email. Next is promo time and first is a returning show from the lovely Ariel called Murder Under the Midnight Sun. It's Tales from Alaska True Crime, which you should have a listen to. And hi Ari, the second promo tonight is from Mike Morford and Nina, which I told you about before, called Crime Sphere. This will be every two weeks and they aim to update you on current cases. So give that a listen. Hi to Mike and Nina. Don't forget, join the Close Group on Facebook. Hook up on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for those last two is at True Crime Island. And just search for the Facebook group by going True Crime Island. Now, I do my best to answer all posts and email. If you do really need to speak to me, then email is the best. Sometimes I get a bit lost in the Twitter feeds. Our amazing mods, all myself, will let you in. Hi to Jason and Senga. And Senga, I hope your little doggy is better. You did post that the little critter was getting better. And Jason, you you get better as well. Stop drinking that bloody 4X. Well, that's about it for tonight. And lots of love to Maggie James. So this has been Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom Vagalanga.
I'm a true crime nerd and a lifelong Alaskan. And in my podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun, I bring you all the dark secrets of this frozen wasteland that I call home. We're the serial killer and missing persons capital of the United States. And we have our fair share of crazy crime stories. So if you want to hear some new cases that you've never heard of before, give my show a listen. Murder Under the Midnight Sun, available wherever fine podcasts are sold. I'm Nina Instead of the Already Gone podcast. I'm Mike Morford, host of The Murder in My Family and co-host of Criminology. Join us for Crime Sphere, a bi-weekly podcast that looks at the latest in true crime news and entertainment. We bring you updates on cases, reviews of what's new in true crime media, and interviews with the people behind the crime media that you love. In our most recent episode, we interview noted criminal defense attorney David Rudolph, who you may recognize from the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. Crime Sphere is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and your favorite podcatchers.